0: professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton
1: Hunt. And I'm John Ash.
0: With us today is Vaughn Vernon. Vaughn is an entrepreneur, software developer, and architect with more than 35 years of experience in a broad range of business domains. Vaughn is a leading expert in domain-driven design and reactive, and a champion of simplicity. Welcome, Vaughn. Thank you, uh, and thank you for having me on the show.
1: Yeah. So before we kind of jump into the meat of things, would you give us a little, uh, introduction to yourself? Perhaps tell us like, um, how you got started in the industry.
2: So I started, uh, developing software professionally in 1983. Um, it was a very bad time economically, right? It was, uh, um, I don't know how many people around still remember that, but, uh, kind of had to beg for jobs back then and unless you had, um, <clears throat> you know, like 10 years experience in mm. COBOL CICS, you know, um, it was, it was pretty tough to get a job, especially in New York city where I was, uh, it was all, you know, financial stuff. So banks and, um, stock markets. So, so anyway, I, I did finally get work and I, um, you know, as I like to say, the best thing that never happened to me was, uh, that, that I, did not get a job in Cobol and instead I landed <laughs> you know in uh, in a company that well they actually used Cobol um, they were working in insurance but they were a clearinghouse and needed to install you know uh, hundreds of uh, IBM PCs across the U.S. or um, in, in hospitals for insurance claim uh, collections and wow I mean you know in 1983 the Essentially, the IBM PC had just been introduced a few years before Heartbeat 1 was using it, and we were just at the, you know, the beginning of um, the boom. I got started that way. My things kind of went from C to C++ to Smalltalk, back to C++ for a while, and then, and then Java, mostly Java, JVM, Scala, and now, um, trying to get, spend some more time with Kotlin.
1: Okay, so yeah, that kind of brings us to what what are what are the things you're working on these days? what are the sort of uh, problems you're solving and, and whatnot?
2: Okay, well, first of all, I spend a lot of time with uh, clients helping them to understand domain driven design, uh, training, consulting, um, helping them to uh, you know understand the difference between sort of I guess the traditional Um, software development project and one that really, uh, interfaces a lot with the business, with, with, uh, business experts, domain experts. Um, and it is a different mindset. It's a different mindset for, um, you know, non-technical people and technical people because there's always been sort of that, uh, gulf between, uh, the two areas and now trying to get them to those wounds and work together is is a challenge and and it's also challenging just to understand the nuances of of language and how human communication um, is is so important when it comes to um, writing software that really reflects the human communication that we have and we don't necessarily give a lot of thought to that until we're just kind of forced to, to step into it and, and learn it and, and, uh, deal with the fact that this really is what Mel Conway talked about, you know, wrote about in 1967, not published till 68 and not really recognized till somewhere early the mid 70s. Um, and he had it right, <laughs> you know, he had it right. Which which proves it's true, right? Because if nobody recognizes you, no one wants to hear it, nobody believes you, you're probably doing something right. Anyway, that's what it's all about. It's uh, human communication, and you get that right, and you reflect it in your software, then Conway's Law works out for you, and you work well within that constraint, and if you don't, well, you just redo it.
0: Yeah, and I think you're considered one of the big influential people in the domain-driven design space. And I think that all kind of ties in together with making sure that writing software that conforms to those ideas and, and, and communicates those ideas. Do you want to give maybe just a, a brief overview of your thoughts on domain-driven design?
2: I probably was using the tenets of domain-driven design um, back in the from the early 90s, and even though it was another 10 years or so, uh, until it was really introduced. It, the ideas came from small talk, a lot of small talk patterns, you know, the, the pop, uh, community and things like that. And so just sort of the model view controller, um, way of doing things meant that you clearly separated your business logic into a model and, and you tried to make your model understand human dynamics of, um whatever your domain you know, sphere of knowledge was that you you were working in. And so it gave you a big head start and, and of course you're using concepts like entities that are stored in a database and and uh and so you know I was doing a lot of this stuff well before we I worked on teams where we really, really you know put a heavy emphasis on the language that we used. Uh we didn't think of it as language at the time. We thought of it more as naming, you know, but naming was a very big thing. And our, the expressions that we used got embedded in in our source code. And, you know, it was, it was all, but domain driven design and even the bounded context, which we had no clue about sort of ended up just because of the style in which we wrote software were smaller components that, uh, you know, had APIs between them. Calm at the time was doing a lot of, you know, stuff on, on Microsoft, uh, Windows desktop. And so, you know, our tools talk through Calm. And so we sort of had those boundaries anyway and, and the language built within them. So, you know, when, whenever I learned about sort of this formal idea of domain design, which I had never, you know, sort of heard of <laughs> it expressed that way, but in reading it, It was just like, wow. Okay. And, and and what it actually came down to is like this book was now sort of like something where I could hold up when I talked to other people and they couldn't tell me that I was a complete fool because the things I was talking about was real, you know, and you could, and you could read it and you could say, look, there are other people who have a similar background, you know, different, but, you know, using some of the same mentality and, and from the small talk world and here you go right this and, and now it's sort of hard to go like oh and even martin fowler wrote the foreword for that book right so now it's sort of like hard to say oh you don't know what you're talking you know? so yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so just trying to be a voice for folks who may not be all that familiar, but you mentioned the concept of bounded context. Would you just give a little bit of a definition to understand that terminology for them?
2: When we have discussions about software, we tend to talk to people who know a certain subject matter. They're often referred to as subject matter experts. Business expert, domain expert is what D and calls them. Well, it's about a domain, a sphere of knowledge. And so what you do is you, you tend to gravitate towards certain people who have this expertise and you have conversations about this very specific area. And you want to contain now a model within that conversational uh, boundary that you have where you're saying, you know, well, when we talk about an account, it means very specifically this In this discussion, right? In this conversation that we're having with these subject matter experts, an account means this. And so we're going to put a boundary around that. We're going to start collecting more language around you know, by by conversing on this topic, and as we discover more and more language that fits into this related um, conversations that we're having, then these you know, that, then we keep adding to that language, but then there's going to come a point where people start talking about, um, an account as something maybe a little bit like what we were talking about over in this conversation, but not exactly like that. And, and what the mistake that most software projects, you know, systems will, will, will make is they will try to make those multiple conceptual accounts fit together like in one place and instead domain-driven design says no they're different so just put them in different contexts you can call them all account right if there are three different sort of definitions or ways that we think about an account um then put those into separate areas where those conversations have clear boundaries it's a context right and that's where that belongs. And then if you need to integrate between those, then you sort of translate between mm-hmm. your language and its language when you need to exchange information. And then you start to form relationships between the two teams of these or the multiple teams of these bounded contexts. And you sort of decide, well, you know, we're a bit more independent than they are. So they're, if they want to exchange information with us, we'll tell them what we know about our thing. But they don't get to, you know, we don't have to care about what they, you know, knowing about their side of the world. And so that puts us upstream, right? And so now we have this whole language, a modeling language, a a pattern language for having these kinds of conversations and integrations and collaboration. And so everybody who's working in this kind of large system, let's say we're trying to build a large system from smaller subsystems, we all know what we're talking about with each other because I say, well, this is our language in our context and we have an open host service and a published language that you can integrate with, but we're upstream, so we're not gonna learn about your language, so if you want to, you can translate our language into your language through an anti-corruption layer, but that's not even our business, so we don't really care what you do with it. You could actually conform to our model if you want to. See, these are all just expressions and so it just becomes as as natural a language for developer like tech, technology and team conversations, if you will, team topologies, right? That you can see how all these concepts start to snap together. And again, it's just Conway's Law. You know, go back to nineteen sixty seven and we're just finally learning and, and begging people to to learn along with us and do this stuff because this is the only way it's going to work.
0: How has DDD evolved in the last 15 years or so? What what are the do's and don'ts and what did they have right originally? Has it has it changed much since earlier definitions? Has it evolved to encompass different ideas, different thoughts?
2: Well, of course, um yes, I would say that, you know, anyone who authors a book on DDD may have a slightly different slant on on things. We we all have our different kinds of ways of you know, our own mental models of things and, and so we can influence people in, in certain ways. But I think the core of BDD around bounded context and the, and the context mapping patterns and so forth are, are pretty much the same. There are a few new patterns around that. Eric Evans came up with something called the bubble context, which is a way of working in legacy and not sort of being subject to the a lot of pollution that's all you know a tangle that's already in that legacy system so you make this kind of bubble around that um and, and and i think there are other things too that that are maybe slightly different you won't find for example a domain event in the in book but shortly after his book was published then this handling event that was in there kind of stood out more and more to him and and then we started having more conversations about domain events because events tended to be very handy in expressing things that happened because, you know, when you have these uh boundaries around, you don't want to, you don't want various contexts constantly pinging other contexts saying, what happened? What happened? Anything happened? You know, instead, we just feel like, okay, this happened. Well, we've had that concept around for a long time, right? Hub, sub, uh, observer, pattern, whatever. So now it's just formalized as part of the DDD pattern lang- language. I think being fine-tuned. I would say also that I think Eric talked about mostly generic subdomains, but subdomain has now come to stand out more than just a generic subdomain. It's more like subdomains are a are a concept of um, you have a problem space domain, and now there are various subdomains within that. And part of those subdomains may be in a legacy system that's just, it's implicitly there, not really explicitly in a, in a nice boundary like you would want it to be if if you had originally designed it with PDB. And so how do we deal with the fact that part of that, that subdomain is over here in this really kind of tangled messy area? And we also need to have part of that implemented now in a new area. How do we you know, exchange information and make that look really smooth for the innovative new area of the, of the system. And I think probably the biggest thing that has changed is the number of different ways that tactically we use domain driven design. And that really gets a lot of people's attention because we're often talking to programmers about this and they get really into that. Programming languages, programming paradigms, you know, are we doing OO, are we doing, <laughs> you know, functional, or are we doing mm-hmm. whatever the, the, you know, paradigm of the day is or, or year. And I don't say that critically. It's just that, in a sense, what matters about the tactical implementation is that people understand it and that it reflects the way people are thinking about this because if you use a paradigm that that no and you write code tactically that no one can really see the business, you know, that, that language in there, then who cares? Like, well, yeah, we care a lot because you did it incorrectly. (laughs) Right. So, so instead, right, whatever you use, make sure that you're making it very clear explicit what this model does, you know, and that, and that, Even business people, non-technical people can look at it and say, yeah, I can totally understand that because it reflects the way that we've been talking as a team. Tests and everything. So I, you know, I don't think anyone really had an idea of what DVD would be like with a functional language back in 2003 or something, but now we probably think about that a lot. So that has changed for sure. One
0: of the refinements or extensions to DDD over the years uh, has been uh, what you call reactive DDD. Uh, could you explain what that is?
2: Yeah. So, well, it's really just blending reactive programming. If you go to the reactive manifesto, reactivemanifesto.org, uh, there's an explanation there that, of what reactive architecture and reactive programming is about. And, and essentially what it boils down to is that reactive is message driven. Okay. So at a sort of foundation, you have to say that we are sending messages from A to B and A to B might be something, you know, an entity or a, or another about, you know, a bounded context or a sub, you know, like just, but just think of there are two components. One sends a message to another component. Right? And, and that is the basic idea of reactive. Now, because you have this, this underlying foundation of message driven, it enables, uh, other characteristics of reactive, which is responsive, right? So now mm. because you're sending messages that don't, um, are, are not strongly coupled to, you know, some parts of the system that make it very diffi- difficult for this to scale out and, and then, you know, uh, s- scale back in. Then it can be more responsive because as, as load continues on the front end or where, wherever, you know, access is being made to this service, let's say, that our service is also being reactive and also elastic, right? And because it's elastic, we can, it, it can expand and contract as needed according to load. Well, that helps us to continue to be responsive, right? Oh, and we can remain responsive and elastic because we're resilient. Because if we you know if, if something goes wrong over here, how do we keep from you know uh cascading like failure not only across our service but across any other services that use it. So I think a lot of people have tended to shy away from reactive because they consider it mysterious. And as soon as you say message sending, right, that it's message driven. People just go like, whoa, wait a minute, I can't handle that. But you know what, what I, what I found is, first of all, there is nothing proactive. I don't think there's anything proactive on this planet. Everything is reactive, okay? Think about it. When you say you're being proactive about something, you're not. You're reacting to something, and you think, you, you know, and that's why I gave a, um, Keynote last week, and I said the title of the keynote was, how did I put that? Uh, proactive is a lie, control is a dream. I think actually a better title would have been control is an illusion, right? So, so now what we're admitting is we'd like to make ourselves and everybody else believe that we're, that we are proactively in control of this software. And in reality, <laughs> we aren't ready for anything, right? And so what we can be ready for is that things will go wrong. And if we can think of everything that could go wrong, or at least a lot of them, then we can be prepared to react when those things go wrong. The other thing is message sending. We've been doing message sending for years. It's just that, you know, small talk was all about message sending. It doesn't mean that it has to be asynchronous. It just means that there's a decoupling between an object saying what it wants another object to do and how that object actually does that for us, right? And that is the thing, is the message is sent. And and it's the same way with an interface. Just think of an interface in C-sharp or Java or whatever as as a protocol, and all that that protocol says is the messages that something knows how to handle, and if you send that message to it, it will determine how it implements it, it doesn't have to tell you how it implements it. Now, where that becomes really crazy is all these getters and setters, right? The anemic way that people program all the time. Well, there hardly is really a message sent because it's obvious what's happening. You're just poking data into an object and and, and getting data out of the object, doing things, right? We always seem to drag things up to the next level up, do something there, and then more gets dragged up to the next level above that. (laughs) (laughs) And then we start pushing things back down when we finally have an answer. We just set things, right? It's like, no, no, no. That's actually inverted of the way it should be. I mean, go back to any elementary object-oriented way of, of, you know, explanations of development. No, 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 that's... That's exactly the opposite of what we should do. So, actually, message-driven is really familiar, and so is reactive. If you want to understand reactive, this conversation that we're having is reactive. Why? Because you asked me a question and I reacted to it. And I'm probably overreacting because I'm talking too much. And I'm trying to help people understand themselves better, right? Look at your life. Every single thing that you do is a reaction. Just look at UI, right? What happens when you click a button in the browser? You get an event that says on click, right? That's a message. People have do- been doing reactive programming for so long that they forget that, or they don't even realize that that is exactly what reactive is. It's just that now we're proliferating that to other parts of the software where we think, today that we're in control of something, that we're proactive, but we really aren't, right?
0: What are your preferred tactical patterns for building DDD systems? How can we make sure that we don't get into this habit of doing more than we should and just creating a a big ball of mud? Are there specific things that we should keep in mind as we're designing our systems?
2: Well, the big ball of mud has less to do with the tactical tools that you use and more about the conversations that you have and the big ball of mud is generally caused by having too many conversations in one place and, and having, you know, five experts from different areas of the business having conversations all together. And we're just, and we, and we don't recognize the boundaries and we just keep pushing things into the same place. Mm-hmm. And, and then we start duplicating things where. We thought there was nothing like this elsewhere, so we duplicate the knowledge, right? Which is, is really what, um, we should be actually preventing, you know, dry, don't repeat yourself, because it's the knowledge that, that is getting leaked to other places. It's not, people think about dry as code related. It's code if the code does exactly, holds and reflects the same knowledge that it does somewhere else. This fracturing and tangle and so forth all happens very much in terms of not knowing where the conversational boundaries are. Really, as long as the tactical tools that you use are, are able to express the conversations in a meaningful way to the team of business people and developers, then it's all useful.
0: Speaking of tools, I understand you've got a collection of of open source tools that that can help.
2: Yes. So if you see my background here, we've got a startup uh, company called Blingo, which is, uh, uh, well, it has the word lingo in it. So it's very much about language. um, And uh, we have a product named Zoom. And Zoom is, and it's XOOM, so it's not like the Zoom communication, uh, software that we're using right now. But this is a, it's a, it's an SDK, um, which actually has, it, it's kind of unique and, well, very unique in the sense that you start out with some high level designs using a visual designer, um, not at all, you know, limiting or constraining and then you can you actually start out in sort of a low code mode right but then when you're happy about it you you can take over in full code mode and, and do the full software life cycle so but the point of this is to actually lift all of the overhead of the surrounding architectural mechanisms that usually you spend way too much time implementing we just make those work for you even to the point where an incoming rest request or an incoming delivery of an event from a message broker or a message bus is automatically translated and dispatched onto the domain model for you so literally all you have to do is think about the domain model and what are the business rules why does this make sense? And then even to the point where um, you now need to put an event in the database, right, emit an event from an aggregator entity, so a tactical tool, into a journal, and then that only not only gets persisted for you, but potentially that event will get broadcast out to others, published out to others. And... And even now you say, okay, but okay, I've got, uh, a few hundred events flowing around the system. How do we know who depends on what? And, um, how do we keep the versioning correct between them and so forth? Well, we have a schema registry, uh, for, with Zoom that maintains the, the versions. And so it's, it's sort of a neutral language. Um, we'll call it a DSL, if you will, but a, A textual language that goes into the schema registry, but when someone depends on that, it comes out in a, in a language specific, uh, implementation and it's just compiled in with your code in a special place where you can't, you can use it, but you can't change it, right? And and now you have all the benefits of type safety and version control over the languages that are being exchanged, right? Between bounded contexts. And uh and then again the automatic translation of okay, someone else's language is, is incoming on a message. Oh, what do I do with that? Well, I'm going to translate that to a command, right? From an event to a command in our language, and I'll and I'll just dispatch that automatically to the um, domain model, and we don't even have to think about it. You literally don't have to do that work. Now, at some point, when you're happy with that. Sort of low code, uh, environment that you're working in, then you just take over with the full source code to the, to the service. And now you can start, you know, if you need to add more event dependencies from other contexts later on, well, you can just add those in. But now you have a lot of examples and we even, um, comment the code all over the place with links into our documentation that explains, okay, how, you know, well, what do I do here? How does this work? Well, you just go directly to docs.giggo.io and, uh, and you read the Zoom documentation.
1: Cool. What, uh, what resources uh, would you have for people who are maybe trying to get into DDD uh, or, or react to some of the topics we have? I, I know you had mentioned that you have some workshops um, that, that you do. What, would, that be, would that be something that would be good for our listeners?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've taught thousands of people. I don't, you know, we don't have a count of how many people I've actually taught, but, um, I, you know, probably more than a thousand already since, uh, the lockdown occurred virtually online, but even more than that before. Um, and I teach anything from implementing domain driven design, which is, um, based on the, the work that I did in, in my red book of the same name kind of my flagship um, workshop. It's four half days, virtually online. Um, I have a number of other ones: uh, event-driven architecture, uh, innovation, you know, with event-driven uh, architecture, and so forth, and, and that's like a two-day, two-half-day workshop. So, uh, and I teach a reactive PDB workshop um, that actually we we sell that for, at a very low cost because it's, um, to us, it's really important to get this message about reactive out there because it's not just good for, um, you know, local optimization. It's actually good for global optimization. When you think about that you can run software at maximum efficiency, you know, we're going exactly in the opposite direction Bitcoin, you know, right? A blockchain, right? Blockchain's like using all the energy on the planet. Not, not really, but you know, like if, if you just think about, about what blockchain is doing in that way, um, we're going in the opposite direction with, with Zoom. So, um, and so we just want people to know about this, that it's really the way that computers were meant to be run since about 2003. Now we're 18 years in. And most people are still not doing that the right way so yeah so yeah so my workshops definitely um i have three books already published two of them specifically on dvd another one on the actor model which is reactive um and then i have a, a fourth book along with uh, our, uh my uh, co-author tomas uh, tomash jascula in in paris and This book is entitled uh, Strategic Monoliths and Microservices Driving Change uh, with um, Purposeful Architecture. So this is really showing that the real story of why software should be used is for innovation. We need to drive business innovation with software and let's get real with each other. If a... You know, well modularized monolith works well for you and microservices don't use it, right? Don't waste your company's money just having fun experimenting with, with technique. Instead, experiment with the business. Make the business, you know, pour, pour those brain cells that you're using to try to tackle. Ooh, I'm sorry. I might, I don't want to offend anyone, but Kubernetes, right? You're trying to you're trying to get <laughs> Kubernetes to work for you and your company, and it's like, wow, we just keep hitting our heads on this. And they should really hire <laughs> John Ash instead to help them with that, right? So, right, right. so they so they so they get John Ash to help them. Then they can just spend their time making the business the challenge, right? I mean that that means you're you're less you're sort of less rock star coder than you are Thomas Edison right Mm -hmm. you're more thomas edison and tesla and people like that now right because you're you're thinking in that direction alexander Graham bell you know whoever was innovative around messaging light whatever in the early days that's what you can be with software and it's what you should be with software
0: before hitting record you you had mentioned that you're also an addison wesley pearson signature author
2: yes my um My current book that we're just finishing now, the one I just mentioned, uh Strategic Monoliths and Microservices, is within a signature series that um I was so privileged to be asked by Pearson, Addison Wesley to to um you know be the editor of my own signature series. And and I have to say it's embarrassing to me to think about the names that and the you know very influential. Three other people that have signature series with them is Kent Beck, Martin Fowler, and, uh, Mike Pullen. And, you know, I got a lot to live up to. I, I, I'm not even going to claim that I can, but we are working hard to make the very best book series that we can possibly produce on the theme, the general theme of organic software development, organic architecture, right? We're where you cannot be right and perfect, but you will never be perfect, but you can't be all encompassing, innovative, all in one point. You, you can't even have your bounded context absolutely correct right now. But organically you can, right? And, and it's sort of like, you know, I, I describe it as a scientist who just keeps their, you know, so we have to keep our uh, lab jackets and pocket protectors in and, um, and just keep experimenting and we find the right way and hey again that's what a true scientist and innovator does right is they experiment that's how that's how all the the really you know true innovators and inventors of the past have done things they just keep trying they don't give up like the wright brothers right i mean what if they had given up on the third crash what if elon musk had given up on the third crash you know, which I learned recently from, uh, Mary Poppendyke, who's been so kind as to, to, um, uh, write the foreword for a book and also reviewed our book very critically. I have to say she is one fantastic, you know, software developer and engineer. And, and that is the key, engineer, right? And, and Mary Poppendyke, like, said, you know, <laughs> I made a sort of funny off the cuff statement about not very much has really been accomplished with rocket science since the 1960s. And she was like, <laughs> Vaughn, you are so wrong. <laughs> and, and the, and the point, well, my point was, well, considering all the progress that have been made in other areas and in innovation in other areas, not so much. But when she really like drew my attention to what SpaceX has, has accomplished, it's, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. And, and what, and her point was, do you know how many rockets they crashed? to get there, and that that a government contractor would never, probably never be permitted to do that, not even one. If they crashed one rocket, out, right? I mean, very likely. And and, and if not one, two, that's the end. So, you know, but instead, SpaceX, like, they just said, hey, if we got to crash rockets, it's so we can learn what works and what doesn't work. And even recently, right? I mean, they didn't crash the rocket, but it blew up some minutes after it landed. And you know what? They're going to learn something from that. Not going to. They already have, no doubt. So, and and what have they done? They own the space delivery business now, right? They own it. Nobody can touch them. So, anyway. Where did we start out? Oh, yeah. My signature series. So, Yes. Think of every book as having that mindset in different sort of technical and uh methodological, you know, paradigm sorts of areas. And and that's where we're going. And I think we're gonna help a lot of people through this, which really kills me.
0: So what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers?
2: Be willing to change, you know. Some people call it reinventing themselves. I don't know that that's really the case. It's really, it's really more like just uh, becoming a better, a better you in different circumstances, right? Circumstances change all the time, and if the past year hasn't proved that to us, nothing will. Right? So, so we've all, anybody who who has survived this, has become a better version of ourselves with the new circumstances that we face. And when that, those new circumstances are technology, face them courageously, right? Be determined that you're going to, to win, right? In this or, or succeed in this, but with humility, knowing that you need help and that people are here, here to help and that teams do better work than individuals, then you can all grow together. One of the biggest pieces of advice that I, that I could give any software developer is, You really have to get out of the, um, introvert hang up, right? It's not that you aren't an introvert. I'm an introvert. And you, and you can already, you can already say, no way. He's talking too much to be an introvert. Way too much. Like I'm sick of listening to him. He's claiming to be an introvert. I'm an introvert, but I have learned to overcome those things and I will be exhausted after this conversation. I will be, I'll just go take a nap or something, but Hey, I make it work for what I need to do and everybody else can do that. Get out of the cubicle. So to speak, you know, go talk to business people, find a way to get along with them, be, make a partnership for innovation. So Mark Andreessen says, what is it? 11, 12 years ago now, software is eating the world. Well, Yes and no. Software is eating the world in one case, and it's eating businesses in other cases in that, right, the the business that's trying to succeed with this just going in the wrong way because they think that they can separate business people and software developers and throw things over the cubicles to the software developers or the other way around, and it's all just going to work out. And how many times has that failed before people are going to learn that it doesn't actually work?
1: So uh, where can our listeners go to uh, follow you and just sort of keep up with what you're working on
2: on Twitter? I am at Vaughn Vernon and I am sorry that my name is so difficult maybe to think of, remember and so forth, but that is it. V A U G H N D E R N O N, uh, initial paths. And, uh, and on LinkedIn, I'm the same slash in slash and then all lowercase Vaughn Vernon. And of course, um, go take a look at, uh, github.com slash or blingo. And then also slash, um, github.com slash blingo dash net for the dot net edition. So we have, we have, uh, we support the JVM. And uh, .NET C-sharp right now will also do F-sharp support. And um, you're going to be amazed at how productive you can be with with our tool set, our SDK. All
0: right, Vaughn. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
2: Oh, Thank you, guys. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a real privilege.
0: That was Vaughn Vernon. Vaughn is an entrepreneur, software developer, and architect with more than 35 years of experience in a broad range of business domains. Vaughn is a leading expert in domain-driven design and reactive, and a champion of simplicity. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com.
1: Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on
0: Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.